Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen from SlashFilm.com and joining me today, he is the man who played Dewey Wise in the 2000 film Sleep Easy, Hutch Rhymes. Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. Uh, you thought you were going to fool me with this Dewey character, right? Uh, I don't know if I thought I was going to fool you, but... Sleep Easy Hutch Rhymes is a pretty odd title for a film. Um, Hutch Rhymes, by the way, is uh, is a name, like R-I-M-E-S. It's not uh, like Sleep Easy because Hutch rhymes his words. You know what I mean? Right. It's a very clever film. It's a very clever film. It's a, I find it a very enjoyable film. One of the most remarkable things about doing Sleep Easy Hutch Rhymes is that we were filming this in Los Angeles in December. So it, it was pretty cold at the time. But the the actual time that it takes place in the movie is the summer. And, and so they wanted to create the idea of a pool party. And so in December in Los Angeles, it must have been in the 30s, you know, easy. It was evening. I had to drink a nice cold ice drink. And uh, they wanted me to wear my shorts and a T-shirt. And in between takes, we'd throw on our winter clothes, like super fast. And then as soon as it was time to shoot, we had to take off all of our clothes and stand around by the pool drinking our ice-cold drinks again and dying of, is it hypothermia that you die of? Yeah. Uh, Yes, that's right. Hypothermia. And what really turned out to be incredible about Sleep Easy Hutch Rhymes, is that the house we ended up shooting at was the house of my present-day cantor from Adat Ariel, uh, cantor uh, Judy Aronov. And so uh, I was at my uh, future cantor's home shooting this film. Wow. It's a small world out there, I guess, Stephen. You know what they say, David? And, and this may pertain to you, too that uh, my, my dear friend Bob used to say, uh, when it comes to the world of show business, uh, Stephen, there are only 16 people and all of them are friends. <laughs> well, Stephen, speaking of physically grueling conditions, you have been out and about traveling around the country, doing live shows, doing book readings, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff. In fact, we have a live show coming up this Sunday uh, you can find the details of that at filmingtobo.com. We're going to be in L.A. doing a very, very small show with only the first 50 people in line able to get in uh, and who RSVP. So filmingtobo.com if you want to learn about that. But you've been on your book tour promoting my adventures with God. And I think that book tour has finally come to an end, right? Ouchie, uh, drum roll, please. Yes, yes, yes. The book tour for the release of my adventures with God has finally come to an end. Hooray. But David, I learned so much. And first and foremost was I was reminded of how much I hate traveling. Uh, The only stabilizing forces when you travel are Starbucks and cable television. But, you know, I find peace knowing that no matter where I would go, there would always be some type of muffin and a consistently all right cappuccino. And no matter where you stay, be it at the Fairmont in Boston or a cabin without a name in the Adirondack Mountains, you will always have House Hunters International. I used to think the purpose of television was to entertain. 
Well, that was certainly true with the shows I've been fortunate enough to work on this year, the Goldbergs, Silicon Valley, and the wonderful One Day at a Time. But those shows are just the shiny object to distract you from television's real purpose, to make you satisfied with your own misery. House Hunters International is the cautionary tale of how blessed we are if we don't follow our demented dreams. We can be perfectly happy just staying at home and doing nothing. As angry as I get when the light bulbs in our kitchen keep blowing out because of a man I only know as Tony wired the recess lighting pot so they'll always add up to more than a seven as described on the television show Green Acres, I'm still not living in Bulgaria where you need to put a goat on a treadmill to get power in the first place. It doesn't matter what episode of House Hunters International you watch or even if you watch it from the beginning. Just a couple of minutes will do the trick. Whether it's the almost-retired couple from Oregon moving to the peace and quiet of Ecuador, which happens to have the largest variety of poisonous snakes in the world, or the Canadian family, tired of the cold winters, moving to the beach in Nicaragua that was recently hit by horrific tropical storms, the suspense is killing. I even put the weather channel on my favorites button on the TV remote, so I could toggle back and forth to see which of the three Oceanside homes in the Dominican Republic will be turned to toothpicks when the next hurricane hits. More than a bedtime glass of wine, House Hunters International always calmed me down. Despite jet lag or changing time zones, I found comfort watching delusional American families wander through dingy apartments in the middle of Prussia with a cot in the living room and a hot plate in what they call a kitchen. You could tell they're bewildered, but in a supreme act of will over reason, they smile as they survey the wreckage of their impending future. If you're not familiar with the show, a couple looks at three different versions of living quarters that would pass as a bad garage sale in the United States. At the end of the show, they must pick one to seal their fate forever. A typical exchange from the show will have the wife say to the real estate agent, Well, it's kind of small, isn't it? Then the smug bastard replies, saying, Well, here in Austria, people don't entertain in their homes. You always be out at the clubs. Then the idiot husband says to his wife, Yeah, honey, we don't need all the space we had in Nebraska. The kids are young. They can adjust. Then the real estate agent tries to seal the deal by stressing history. In America, everything is new, 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 new. Here in Europe... We have a very old culture. You can live in a room that was once used during the time of Napoleon. And they have the plumbing to prove it. The show ends with the victim sitting in a public park eating ice cream. The idiot husband says, Well, honey, we always said we wanted our kids to experience different cultures. The wife nods thoughtfully. Yes, and I don't think they'll mind sleeping in bunk beds until we could turn the entry hall into another room. It's worse than Silence of the Lambs. I'm screaming at my television. No, no, don't do it. Stay in Omaha. Stay in Omaha. But they don't. The final shot is of the family of six eating pastries at some European version of Starbucks with the wife's upbeat voice over saying, Well, I'm sure there'll be a period of adjustment, but it's an adventure. Footnote. Adventure is a phrase coined by a publicist meaning out of control. 
When you're on a book tour for multiple days in multiple cities, your lifeline is email. You get constant updates and corrections as to the next day's schedule. The effectiveness of this method depends on you not having to switch your phone into airplane mode. When you do that, you often get next day's activities two days after the next day is done. At first, this information lag caused me lots of stress. Then I learned to let it go, and I thank House Hunters International for that. My misery was nothing like the couple from San Francisco who had to wait for Geppetto and his mule to haul a new toilet up the mountain in Italy. And it wasn't like the family moving to Australia that needed to collect rainwater for a shower. No one could get hurt at one of my book readings. The chaos of the road trip created a curious mental state. I couldn't remember when I was or where I was going. I lost track of what part of the country I was in. Without seeing a broader pattern, everything I experienced had the shock of the new, and then it was gone. I read somewhere, that's what makes a goldfish a goldfish. It could only remember what happened in the last two seconds, and then it forgets. It can never learn. It only has the instinct to swim and eat and overeat and die. But after the first week of traveling, something unusual began to happen. Certain images rose to the surface. They weren't complete ideas, but they were like tiles in a mosaic, burned and fired and beautiful. The book tour started in Dallas two days after my father's 95th birthday. At this point, Dad can no longer walk. He can't see. He could hardly hear, but he was determined to come to the reading. The auditorium in the Dallas Art Museum has a place for wheelchairs at the back of the theater. I walked on stage, and there he was, the lone wheelchair at the back of the theater. Dad's effort displayed love, devotion, and sacrifice. And I think that's a pretty good definition of faith. I mentioned to the audience of about 400 that my father took great pains to stay up after his bedtime to be here tonight. Everyone turned and applauded for Dad. I said, wait, wait, not good enough. He just turned 95, even though we're two days late. I think it's still appropriate to sing Happy Birthday. The audience didn't need any encouragement. All 400 sang at the top of their lungs. At first, Dad waved to the crowd. But as the singing continued, he pushed himself up out of his wheelchair and held his hand up almost in a salute. Everyone cheered. My cousin Stan was sitting next to Dad. He laughed and told me later that it was like watching Babe Ruth waving to the stands after he hit a home run. The next day, I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I expected cowboys and oil derricks. What I got was a huge surprise. Tulsa is an explosion of the arts. There are theaters, galleries, book fairs. They just got the rights to house the Bob Dylan archives. I told stories in an exquisite synagogue that was both old and new. Before my talk, I waited in their library. Old and new versions of the Talmud filled the shelves. There were books on Jewish history, Torah study, the lives of great men and women who dedicated themselves to the preservation of an idea. Again, it was a symbol of love, devotion, and sacrifice. The next day, I was in Baltimore. My youngest son, William, was finishing his first year of medical school at Johns Hopkins. 
His class was being presented their first white doctor coats with the names stitched into the pocket. The 120 members of his class stood side by side across the giant auditorium stage. Young men and women from all over the world, all smiling, some waving to their families, some making funny faces to their friends in the audience. I started to cry. I couldn't help it. And it wasn't out of pride. It was because I knew how hard it was to get there. The amount of work. The single-mindedness. It was a portrait of devotion, love, and sacrifice. And now the mosaic was developing a theme. The keynote speaker was Dr. Peter Pronovost. He came up to the microphone. He was a doctor who had graduated from the school and had achieved international notoriety. He told the story of his most important moment as a physician. It happened, coincidentally, the day he received his white coat. He said he left the school in his new doctor's outfit. He was too proud to take it off. On his way home, he stopped at a little grocery store to get food for his apartment. In the store, an old woman mistook him in his white jacket for a grocery clerk and asked, Young man, do you know where the Brussels sprouts are? He said at first he was insulted. After all, he had a degree from one of the top medical schools in the world. He said in an instant he looked at the woman and understood something new and said, Yes, ma'am, I believe they're over here. Let me help you. His most important moment was the revelation that his coat wasn't a symbol of authority, but of one who humbly stands at the service of whoever needs him even for Brussels sprouts. After Baltimore, we flew across the country to come back home for clean underwear and for the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. On the flight, I thought about what connected all of the events so far, besides the recurring theme of devotion and sacrifice. There was something hidden in the background. Where does the motivation for all of our efforts come from? One of the biggest problems about actors' training is that it often focuses on the self, the voice, the body, the emotions. To use an analogy, the car. Yes, the engine is always important, and you won't go very far if you have a flat. But what takes you places is the road. You didn't build the road. You didn't plan the road. Usually the most we know about the road is where we get on and get off, but the road was there before we set out on our trip. The road will be there after we're done. So where does the road come from? I would argue that it is part of our legacy, a gift from the past that we use in the present to direct our future. The most apparent legacy is a will. Someone dies, you get a check. You use the money for school or your children's school. Bert from our rock group, the L.A. Slugs, he got a check. He built a recording studio. When my Uncle Sylvan passed on, I bought a piano. But there are other legacies. There's the invisible legacy of history. When I was in high school, I took a bus trip to the U.N. Along the way, we stopped at various points of interest. One of them was the battlefield at Gettysburg. I was unprepared, and I know I'm not alone in what I felt when I stepped off of that bus. It was the first time I experienced what they call holy ground. 
there was something beyond quiet, something beyond dreadful, something that reached up from the earth and grabbed me and said, I will be with you now and for the rest of your life. It was here at Gettysburg that the legacy of slavery collided with the legacy of justice and became the legacy of sacrifice. So many thousands of innocent men died to end that terrible evil and were all the recipients of that legacy in whatever form it might take. When I was growing up, I remember my parents saying that Oak Cliff was a white flight community. I had no idea what that meant. I found out that in a very legal way, our civic leaders made it difficult for black people to live in our neighborhoods. The result was something that those who created this legacy could never have imagined. As a child, I didn't know many black people. I knew three. There was Lenora, our maid, Claudie, Alice Nell Allen's maid, and Thomas, the custodian in my father's office building. To this day, these three people have been among the kindest, the noblest, the most courageous, and the most successful people I have ever known. Because we lived in a white flight area, all of the bullies, all of the criminals and idiots were white. What may have been a legacy born of some form of white supremacy had the exact opposite effect in its application. I grew up thinking black people were superior. I had to work hard to rise to the moral level of Lenora and Claudie. I had to work hard to be as generous and as kind as Thomas and have the universal respect he garnered from the people who worked with him. And so a new form of the legacy was passed on. When I was in high school, I went to a speech tournament in Shreveport, Louisiana. We were driven to a local high school. It was Saturday, so the place was empty except for the contestants for poetry and dramatic interpretation. I was hanging out, waiting for my start time, and I saw a drinking fountain labeled Colored. It took me a while to process what this meant. Then I got it. Shock. Disbelief. I looked at the water fountain again, and there was something else disturbing about the word colored beyond the obvious. I stared at the black paint on the blue tile trying to understand. Then it hit me. It was the lettering. The word colored was perfectly painted. It was a professional job, official, paid for with tax dollars. This legacy had another unintentional effect. Even though I had nothing to do with the local ordinances, I felt complicit by being there. I was taking part in a tournament in a place that still honored this tradition. I could never tell Lenora about my visit. I would never want to see the disappointment in her eyes. My desire to honor her goodness demanded I do something. So, while I was waiting to go to my event, I drank from the fountain. My first and only racial protest. I was hoping to remove some of the sign's horrible power. I'm embarrassed to say I was barely able to complete a single sip. No matter where the road takes you, the engine that gets you there is courage. When my college roommate Jim McClure and I took our road trip to do summer stock in New York, we spent that first night at his home in Shreveport. Jim vanished at one point early in the evening. I sat with Jim's mother and his sister Mariana, passing the time until his return. Jim's mother asked me if I had ever visited Shreveport. 
I told her about the speech tournament and the water fountain. Jim's sister shook her head. Awful. It's just awful. Jim's mother agreed. She tried to assure me, Tobo, that was an old sign. People around here don't do things like that anymore. I believed her. But the tragedy of history remains. For some reason, it's hard to learn the paint is cheap and it lasts for years. On our trip to New York State, I never told Jim about the water fountain or my conversation with his mother. I'm not sure why. I thought it could have hurt his feelings. Jim always seemed to be apologetic about coming from Shreveport. He used to joke that at least it wasn't Bossier City. Inside jokes about towns in Louisiana are too deep for me. Jim spent about 70 miles on the road to Pennsylvania explaining to me the metaphysical levels of hell in Bayou Country. I learned the hard way that there is a corollary to the car courage engine metaphor. If there is a road and your engine is working, you will get there. This is a good news, bad news scenario. It's true if you want to make it to the Broadway stage, and it's true if you want to try cocaine for the first time. In this case, it was true that Jim and I arrived at the Forestburg Summer Theater. He took one look at the dilapidated barn, also known as the theater. He met Tony, the technical director, who looked like a serial killer. He spoke to Al Maisel, the head of the theater, who seemed like some kind of maniac, and then Jim decided to leave. To his credit, Jim took the time to drive me to a deserted part of the forest and give me ten minutes to decide if I wanted to go back with him or be stranded in upstate New York for the rest of the summer. I chose Oscar Wilde and stayed. I stood in front of the theater in the swirling dust of the departing Mustang. I was flooded with emotion. I couldn't tell if I was hurt by being deserted by Jim, or fearful that I would have to face the unknown alone, or excited that it meant more parts for me. Ron Troutman, one of our directors and my chief candidate for savior of my summer, told me to call Beth to see if she wanted to come up for the season. That was a sign I made the right choice. Al Maisel took me up a flight of stairs and showed me to my room. Well, wasn't really a room. It didn't have a door. It challenged any notions I ever had of a living space. It was the loft of a barn above the stage. There were eight spaces partitioned with plywood. There was a single mattress on an iron bed frame with springs in each space. The dimensions were challenging. My room, as it shall be referred to from now on, was 12 feet long, 6 feet wide, and 4 feet high. Let me repeat, it was four feet high. The slope of the barn roof meant that to get into bed, I had to crawl on my hands and knees and then roll up onto the mattress. There was a chest of drawers against the far wall. Here, the barn roof sloped up, so I had about six feet of clearance to dress, or I could just dress in the common area outside of the room. I said to Mr. Maisel, It's a little small, isn't it? He said, well, you're not going to be spending much time in here. Nobody entertains in their rooms in Summerstock. You'll be downstairs in the canteen. We'll have beer there. There'll be music. The rest of the time you'll be rehearsing and performing. But I can't even stand up in here, I said. Maisel smiled. No one could stand up. 
This is an old hayloft. It goes back over a hundred years. You are actually sleeping in a bit of history. And you notice, you do have a window. On the barn wall by the stained pillow by my bed was a small rectangular window that looked out over the deep mountain forests. I kneeled down on the mattress and looked out of the window. The glass was old and wavy, making the trees and clouds and sky look otherworldly. Maisel leaned down behind me and said, Not all of these rooms have a window. I always thought this view was the best. I'll take it, I said. Good, good, said Maisel. The meals are in the canteen, three meals a day. Parents always worry when the kids come here for the summer if the food will be good. I promise you this, by August you would have gained weight. Thank you, Al. Glad you stayed. You won't regret it. Auditions for importance of being earnest are tomorrow. Your buddy Troutman is directing. The rest of the company should be here in a few days. I'll let you unpack. Maisel left. I lugged my giant suitcase upstairs and unzipped it. And there on the top was the sealed envelope from Paul Friedman in Troop. In all the confusion of the last 24 hours, I totally forgot about it. Jim and I visited him in the ice cream store, and Mr. Friedman said something about not having children of his own, but he had been saving this for years, and he wanted me to have it. He said, Stevie, open this when you feel like you've run out of options. Consider it a legacy, and whatever you do, don't lose it. Four and twenty years ago, I come into this life. The son of a woman and a man who lived in strife. He was tired of being poor. And he was My phone call with Beth was not so much a conversation as a celebration. The possibility of spending the entire summer together doing theater was overwhelming. It was better than eating waffles for dinner. The concept of a shared future has power. It's rooted in the belief that in good times or bad, there's always someone else you could blame. You also have an audience to become your better self. Sidebar. There's something optimistic about being around people who are falling in love. Mutual affection is often so public, and yet the couple behaves like they're keeping a secret. And maybe they are. We are more private about our articles of faith. Even holding hands is usually a sign that someone's prayer has been answered. Beth was off the phone to get permission from her mother and to book her bus tickets. That night I had my first dinner at Forestburg. The appetizer was a stack of white Wonder Bread and butter, followed by a main course of baked tongue with mashed potatoes. The starch-heavy menu emphasized the savory quality of the tongue. The full complement of actors hadn't arrived, so I sat with Tony and the movement instructor and choreographer, Gene Palmer. I liked Tony from the start, despite the fact that he did look like a serial killer. He was tall, lanky, he wore sagging jeans and a sagging flannel shirt held together by a sagging belt. 
He had thick, curly black hair and eyebrows and a bushy black mustache. Now, at this point, Tony just looked like one of the Mario brothers. But what put him over the line into looking like a murderer were his eyeglasses. They were so thick, you knew he probably had to identify people by scent. With his glasses on, reverse magnification made his eyeballs look like the dots at the bottom of exclamation points. But when he took his glasses off to clean them, his eyes were huge and brown and overwhelmed you with warmth and humor. And then he put his glasses back on again and went back to little black dots. Jean could have been one of the most beautiful women I had ever seen in my life up to this point. She had classic features, long blonde hair, laughing eyes. She always wore some type of dance clothing, which always seems to work for women. Whenever I wore dance clothing, even in my 20s, I looked like an enchilada. Like most people at dinner time, we talked about eating food. Think they have enough bread on the table? Jean asked. It's Maisel's trick to get everyone fat, said Tony. What do you mean? Jean asked. Haven't you heard his line about everyone gaining weight here? Tony said. Yes, I said. As a matter of fact, just today, Maisel told me I would gain weight. Yeah, that's the line he tells parents who leave their kids here for the summer. See, they don't pay the apprentices. That's what he calls them. Apprentices. Stephen, how much are you getting paid? Uh, $10 a week? Yeah, that's bad. But it's better than the apprentices. They get nothing. Worse, most of them have to pay for room and board. So Maisel puts loads of white bread and butter on the table and serves something like, what is this, tongue? Yes, said Jean, it's tongue and it's revolting. Who eats tongue? Oh, I don't mind it, I said. It tastes just like corned beef, but with no flavor. Jean shook her head. Disgusting. Right, said Tony. So he serves up tongue, which costs, what, like 50 cents a pound? White bread and butter that has no nutritional value at all. He's figured out a way for most of the people here to get fat and starve to death at the same time. It's genius. Well, I can't stand the idea of eating a tongue they rip out of a bull's mouth, said Jean. Tony looked at her. They don't rip out a bull's tongue. More likely a steer or an old cow. I can't stand the idea of eating that. Oh, but you're okay with eating what a chicken walks around on? Or how about a lamb's rib cage? Stop it, Tony. Jean hit Tony in protest. I'm getting a smoke. I'll join you, said Tony. Just a sec. Jean walked out into the dusk, turning into dark. Tony turned his attention to me. So, Stephen, they're already rehearsing the first two shows, so I figure you have a few days with nothing to do. You want to work for me? Me? How? Tony grinned. How about assistant technical director? I need to do work on the instruments here. They're pretty decrepit. Rewire a few. Hang pipe. You ever do any electrical work? While I was in the lighting practicum at SMU, I had my own wrench. You know how to use a wrench? But you, you tighten it and loosen it? Yeah, you know enough. Meet me in the theater tomorrow after Jean's movement class. Uh, Tony, does your job pay anything? Not a penny. Okay, just checking. But I do have a truck. We could drive into town for a drink whenever we want. Really? I asked. 
Tony smiled. Really? Well, you can't beat that. No, sir, you can't. Well, I'll see you in the morning, I said. Tony walked out to join Jean. I went upstairs to see how nighttime fell on my little room. The sun had set behind the mountains, but it was still not dark enough to see the stars. Now I felt sorry for Jim for having to miss all of this. The inside of the barn was magical at night. And being on stage, it was like any stage I'd ever been on. Holy. Tony and Jean were wonderful people. I couldn't wait to work with them. Even the piles of bread on the table made me laugh. There was no question that the Forestburg Summer Theater was a harsh mirror. That first day there, I learned a lot from my reflection. I was an optimist. It wasn't logical. I didn't arrive at it by intellect. I think it was the legacy I got from my mother. I first learned I was an optimist when I was growing up in Oak Cliff. The favorite moment of all of our lives was hearing the sounds of the approaching popsicle truck. It began with music, sort of. It was a rinky-dink version of Pop Goes the Weasel and played over and over and over again. And whenever we kids hear it, we would stop playing. Everybody froze to hear if the music was coming closer or moving away. We made an instantaneous calculation of the truck's arrival and then ran home to get change. A regular popsicle, 10 cents. Then inflation hit and it went to 12. We used pennies back then. We were all ready when the truck rounded our corner. We stood patiently in line as the popsicle man pulled to a stop and started dishing out the goods. There was no rush. All of us knew we would be served. There was no pushing, no shoving. We were as patient as children could be before eating frozen sugar. My favorite by far was the orange popsicle, except on the rare occasion when the popsicle man had what he called a 7-Up popsicle, which was white and tasted like lemonade. I was fine with the sweet tang of orange. It was a perfect remedy to the Texas sun. But then there came the day when the popsicle man stopped selling orange popsicles. I don't know why. He just did. My mother found some at the store, a six-pack. Then the six-packs vanished. They started selling lots of popsicles at the store, and shortly afterwards the popsicle man vanished from our neighborhoods. The stores sold boxes of 12 single-stick popsicles in three different flavors, orange, grape, and cherry. Cherry was the worst. It tasted like cough syrup, and it made your mouth red. It wasn't long before I noticed a shift in the flavor distribution. Instead of four each per box, they started putting in only two orange popsicles. Then they altered the flavors again. One orange, five grape, six cherry. One night I was eating my favorite snack for TV watching, the combination of rye bread Fritos washed down with a popsicle. Mom sat and watched with me. Then she said, I'm sorry, sweetheart. I can't find orange popsicles anywhere. It's okay, Mom, I said. I can see that life is about learning to love cherry. My mother laughed. She got up and kissed me on the forehead. Steppy Doors, you are so right. That is the most important thing you could learn. A different kind of poverty now upsets me so. My 
night after sleepless night I walk the floor and I want to know why am I so alone where is my woman can I bring her home I started to unpack I opened my little chest of drawers It looked like it was being used as a spider sanctuary, so I decided to keep my clothes in my suitcase. I hung up my suit on a nail on the wall. I figured the wrinkles would fall out by the time I needed it. I shuffled and rearranged the contents of my suitcase for maximum efficiency. But then I was stuck with a dilemma. What to do with Paul Friedman's envelope? Now, ordinarily, I would have opened it, of course. I was curious. But what if it were something that needed safekeeping? Maisel seemed like a potential maniac. I couldn't trust him to hold it for me. I didn't know who would eventually live in the hayloft with me. My room didn't have a door. There was no privacy. So I decided to hide it in my suitcase. I put it inside a pullover sweater. I folded the sweater and put it under my underwear. The human abhorrence to someone else's jockey shorts was the only protection I had. The next morning I was ready for breakfast. I began with white bread and butter, and then I had a bowl of oatmeal. Our cook was an older black man named Mr. Watson. Al Maisel asked me if I could stay after breakfast and help Mr. Watson with the dishes. After I ate, I walked back to the big industrial sink in the kitchen area. Mr. Watson tossed me an apron. You're gonna need this. Uh, Yes, sir. I put on the apron and Playtex living gloves and added dish soap to the hot water in the sink. Uh, hello, my name is Stephen, Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm Mr. Watson. Yes, sir. Uh, what would you like for me to call you? Mr. Watson stared at me. Mr. Watson. Yes, sir. I picked up the brush and the sponge. So, Mr. Watson, do you have a secret as to how you would like me to clean this pot? Again, Mr. Watson stared at me. Yeah, scrub it. That's my secret. I gleaned that Mr. Watson was not a people person. He preferred to keep his own company. Al Maisel privately told us to leave Mr. Watson alone, only speak when spoken to, and then only with the highest respect. It was hard to get cooks with Mr. Watson's credentials. I assumed that meant knowing 50 ways to cook tongue. It goes without saying that Mr. Watson did not live in the barn. Oh, no. He had a special room in the big house. Sidebar. The living arrangements at the Forestburg Summer Theater were determined by a social hierarchy similar to the caste system in India. Al Maisel and his wife Sally were royalty. They lived in their own home across from the barn. This was a big house with several bedrooms for guests that never showed up. The house had everything. Electricity, running water, and a washing machine but this house was off-limits at all times. The resident artists lived in what was called the Big House. The Big House was a bigger house than Maisel's house and was across the drive from the barn. The Big House had several private bedrooms with doors. It still had the shadow of what was once an elegant dining room, a parlor, a kitchen, a library, and an expansive porch that looked out over the property. I imagine it looked quite grand a century ago. Now it was closer to a ruin. Paint was peeling. 
We were warned that termites were winning the battle of the front porch. If you dared go out and sit on the veranda, you could fall through the boards. Maisel told us to stay out of the library. The books and the floor had been inundated with what he said was, and I quote, some kind of wetness. And there was a mold in there that could kill you. You read at your own risk. The resident artists who lived in the big house included the actors who came from New York City, our two directors, Ron Troutman, and SMU alum Frederick Bailey. Footnote, if you remember in the Dangerous Animals Club, in the story Don't Argue with the Road, I talk about the very same Frederick Bailey. This is where I met him. Also in the big house were Tony, Gene, and Mr. Watson. Mr. Watson had the best room in the big house. His room had a view and a door with a lock. He had an air conditioner and a private bathroom with a tub and a shower. One of Tony's first jobs that summer was to install a television for Mr. Watson. The rest of us untouchables lived in the barn. In the barn, there was no cohabitation. The men lived upstairs in the hayloft, and the women were downstairs in what I suspected were horse stalls. Even after I found out that the big house was a death trap, I still wished I'd lived there. Eventually, I would have to tell Mom and Dad I was living in a horse barn. I couldn't figure out any way to make that sound good. It was more ammunition for Mom to urge me to go back into pre-law. After cleaning the breakfast dishes for Mr. Watson, I ran outside to take Jean's movement class. There are many theories as to why relationships between actors are so difficult. The schedules, the competition, the lack of financial security. I have another one. Movement classes. It's hard to impress a woman when you're always out of balance. Jean tried to stifle laughter as she attempted to straighten my tree pose. Uh, Stephen, your top is not over your bottom. Has anyone ever told you that? No, no, you're the first. Well, um, we'll work on that over the summer, she said hopefully. Thanks. After class, I ran over to audition with Ron Troutman for the role of Algernon Moncrief in The Importance of Being Earnest. I'd studied the first scene in Act One with Lane the butler and the love scene with Cicely in Act Two. Ron sat in a chair and gestured, Give me a hug, Tobo. I did. I'm so glad you stayed. Me too, Ron. So, you know you have this part, right? I do? Of course! Well, should I read? Ron laughed. If you must. I began with Act One Algernon. Did you hear what I was playing, Lane? Ron stopped me. Okay, fine, you got the part. Now go learn your lines. Well, Ron, I did work on Act Two. Oh, please, Tobo, don't do this to me. Well, well, just in case you want to steer me in another direction. Sure, go ahead, thrill me. What's next? I learned the love scene with Cecily. Got it, go. <clears throat> I hope, Cecily, I shall not offend you if I state quite frankly and openly that you seem to me to be... Ron interrupted. Wait! What? If you're going to do the scene, at least do it with your Cecily... Ron gestured. Jean was standing at the door in her dance clothes. Oh, I said. Jean, will you get up there with Tubbo? He has something to say to you. Jean walked up and faced me and smiled. 
I looked into Jean's eyes and could no longer speak. She stood there waiting, and I began. I hope, Cecily, I shall not offend you if I state quite frankly and openly that you seem to me to be in every way possible the visible personification of absolute perfection. Great, you got the part. So go, rehearse, make out, whatever. We start act one at the beginning of next week. It was the most telling audition I ever had. I always thought the hardest part of acting was telling a lie. I learned the hardest part is when you have to tell the truth. I was walking over to the big house to call Beth on the phone, and I ran into Mr. Maisel. So, what do you think of the place? Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. I liked dinner last night. I never had tongue before. Yes, it's quite delicious. It's what we always ate when I was a boy. I told you, you're going to gain weight here this summer. Well, I will if you keep serving tongue. Maisel laughed and walked off. I got Beth on the phone. She told me she got permission and was coming. I told her I couldn't wait. I told her I had the lead in earnest. I told her about Tony and Jean. I told her about the mountains and the sunsets. Well, what are the stars like there? I don't know, I said. I haven't seen them yet. Then we'll see them together, she said. That night I crawled into bed and looked out my window. There were no stars. I fell asleep. I was awakened by a terrible crack of thunder that shook the barn. Rain poured on the roof and then through my little window, soaking my mattress and then me. That got my attention. I looked out of my window. There was nothing but utter blackness. And then there was a flash of lightning that illuminated the countryside. For an instant, there were trees and mountains lit as bright as day. And then I was in blackness again. I tried to count the seconds between the flashes and the thunder like I did when I was a boy in Texas. There was none. That meant we were in the middle of the storm. Even though I was wet and cold, I had to keep watching. Another bolt of lightning, and there, outside my window, was an enormous full-grown stag with giant antlers. He stood right below my window looking back at the forest. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The thunder rolled, and all returned into blackness. Then there was another flash, and the stag turned and ran back into the forest and was gone. It was a miracle, and I only saw it because I was in this little room on my little bed pushed up against my leaky little window. I learned a valuable lesson that night. Life is never about the size of the orbit. It's about the beauty of the arc. The next morning, after white bread and pot scrubbing, after movement class and cutting pipe and hanging old fresnels with newly spliced cords, I asked Tony if I could borrow some of his tools. Tools? Tony asked. Well, maybe just a hammer and nails, piece of wood? What's up? Well, I brought some books with me, and I thought maybe I could put a bookshelf in my room. Tony smiled and scratched his head. I'll help you after lunch. That afternoon, Tony surveyed my section of the loft. You sleep here? Yeah. Kind of small, Tony said. Yeah, I said. How do you get into the bed? Why crawl? Tony nodded. And you want to add a bookcase? 
Well, a shelf. You see, I have these books, and I laid the ten books out on my mattress. I see, said Tony. And where you want this shelf to go? I guess by my window. But then you're going to have a wooden shelf right above your head. I don't want you to skull yourself when you wake up. That's a good point. But the only other piece of wall I have is over by my dresser, and that's a long crawl. It'd be impossible for me to get a book over there. Yeah, all right. Let me get a couple of brackets and some wood screws. I get my drill. Books aren't very heavy. I think there's some one-by-four out behind the theater. Yeah, it could work. I'll be right back. I yielded to Tony. In 30 minutes, I was arranging my little library of theater books on the shelf above my pillow. I lay on my bed and opened my little window to air out my mattress. I started learning my lines for Ernest. The sweetness of the mountain air and the warmth of the sunlight filled me with such a sense of freedom. In an act of autonomy, I closed my script and took down one of the books from my library. New Theaters for Old. The author, Mordecai Gorlick, suggests that there's one element that unifies all theater from any age. The mixture of the practical and the magical. Gorlick cites the prologue of Henry V, where Shakespeare says he would prefer real princes do the acting, and the warlike Harry play the leading role. But since there is only an unworthy scaffold to act upon, the spectators must piece out the imperfections, divide one man into a thousand parts, deck out kings and princes, see imaginary horses, and fit many years' time into an hourglass. The white clouds passed overhead and temporarily blocked the sun. I could see a new line of storms in the distance. I put Gorlick down and picked up Oscar Wilde again. It was time to go to work. When you were young, did you question all the answers? Did you envy all the dancers who had all the That was The Legacy, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. A couple thoughts, Stephen. Firstly, uh, hearing you talk about preparing for a role, I'm curious what your method of preparation is these days. You know, Do you have a, a private room in your house where you like to go? Uh, I, I know you do a lot of walking while reading scripts. Like, what, What's your uh, memorization pattern these days? Yeah, I I walk a lot in the neighborhoods. In fact, I think I cross the line of sanity in that I'm recognized a lot of different places, mainly for Groundhog Day. And recently, David, for the Tobolowsky Files, but even more recently at the grocery store, a woman came up to me and goes, I know you. You're the man who's always talking to himself, walking around our neighborhood. So that's my method of learning my stories now. Yeah, it's pretty... Awesome. That will be your legacy. Um, Well, Stephen, people can actually see us live this weekend. Uh, I'm going to be in Los Angeles, and we're going to film The Afflictions of Love, one of my favorite stories from uh, Dangerous Animals Club, your first book. And we're going to be at the White Fire Theater in Sherman Oaks, California, 
at uh, 2 p.m. The show will start pro- start promptly at 2 p.m. You can get there at one thirty. Doors open at that point. By the time you are listening to this podcast, the uh, number of seats may already be full, but we're going to do it first come, first serve. So uh, if you get there, you know, one o'clock, you can start lining up. We'll see how many people are there. Uh, but yeah, if you want more details on that show, filmingtobo.com. That's F-I-L-M-I-N-G-T-O-B-O.com. Uh, and you can see me and Steven live for a very small filmed show. You may be on film uh, on May 28th at 2 p.m. Uh, Steven, you also have a few other dates where you're going to be appearing, right? Uh, that's right. Now, the book tour is officially over. However, uh, you know, the the guilty have to keep working. If you're in the Los Angeles area, I'm going to be doing a reading from the book at the Skirball Auditorium. That's up on Mulholland at 2 p.m., and that is going to be June the 8th. And it's a beautiful venue, and they have a lovely Thursday afternoon show, 2 p.m. at the Skirball. And then I'm doing a benefit for Theater 40 on uh, June 18th. That's a Sunday. So uh, I may actually be doing Afflictions of Love uh, on that 18th day. So if you can't be one of the 50 people to come in and see us uh, this Sunday, uh, I will be performing Afflictions of Love also at Theater 40. And uh, I have another date cropped up here, David. at my synagogue, Adad Ariel, at 7.30 in the evening. That is going to be on June 21st. I'm going to be doing uh, some stories from the book as well. So uh, see you, cats, at any one of those shows, and hope to see you this Sunday uh, filming. Oh, my gosh, I'm getting nervous, David. <laughs> All right. Find more episodes of this podcast at tobolowskifiles.com. Find links to Stephen's book and his uh, dates at stephentobolowski.com. Spell it for us, Stephen. That would be S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. That's the Russian spelling, David. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios. Adios.